ಸದ್ಗಮಯ ತಮಸೋಮ್ಯೋತಿರ್ಗಮಯ ಮೃತ್ಯುರ್ಮೃತ ಗಮಯ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ದಿ ಅನ್ರಿಯಲ್ ಟು ದಿ ರಿಯಲ್ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡಾರ್ಕ್ನೆಸ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಟು ಲೈಟ್ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡೆತ್ ಟು ಇಮಾರ್ಟ್ಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಓಂ ಗುಡ್ ಮಾರ್ನಿಂಗ್ ಎವ್ರಿಬಡಿ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಗುಡ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಗುಡ್ ಟು ಸಿ ಆಲ್ ಆಫ್ ಯು ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಬಿ ಬ್ಯಾಕ್ ಹಿಯರ್ ದಿಸ್ ಅ ವೆರಿ ಆಸ್ಪೆಷಿಯಸ್ ಡೇ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಈಸ್ಟರ್ ಆರ್ಗ್ಯುಯಬ್ಲಿ ವಿತ್ ಅಲಾಂಗ್ ವಿತ್ ಕ್ರಿಸ್ಮಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಇಸ್ ದ ಹೋಲಿಯೆಸ್ಟ್ ಡೇ ಇನ್ ಕ್ರಿಶ್ಚಿಯಾನಿಟಿ ಇನ್ ಫ್ಯಾಕ್ಟ್ ದಿಸ್ ಹೋಲ್ ವೀಕ್ ಇಸ್ ದ ಹೋಲಿ ವೀಕ್ ಇನ್ ಕ್ರಿಶ್ಚಿಯಾನಿಟಿ you have thursday which is the last supper which marks the last supper friday the crucifixion of jesus christ and sunday the resurrection of jesus christ so this is easter easter sunday marks the resurrection what does it mean you see from a vedantic perspective one can understand christianity as a bhakti tradition a tradition of devotion to god and faith and surrender to god among bhakti traditions also there is a specific kind of bhakti tradition which is devotion to the avatar of the incarnation now i know immediately there will be uh, theologians who will say no 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 the hindu idea of incarnation uh, the avatar and the christian idea of incarnation are different there are differences but i don't think there are major differences they're basically talking about the same phenomenon divine phenomenon that the appearance of god in human form among human beings in history so in christianity it is not only devotion to god not only faith in god but specially devotion and faith and surrender and acceptance of the incarnation of god jesus christ which is central and there also the uh, resurrection of jesus christ on this easter sunday this is central because with this comes the uh, promise of eternal life overcoming death so as we chanted earlier uh, leaders from death to immortality this is the promise of all religions all religions across the world basically all that they are they are trying to say is that there is a way out of this limited existence there is a way out of this uh, imperfect existence into a perfection into a divinity into Im- from mortality to immortality um so today what i want to speak about today there's a little background to it um i've just said easter inspirations so i'm going to talk about something from christian devotional uh, and mystical literature but the text is not so well known so the background is this last year when i was at harvard one of the courses which attracted me was there was it was offered a course on christian uh, contemplative traditions so i liked the idea of this course and so i signed up for it and i went the first day in the class it was so impressive i was so happy to see that there were so many young people uh, in the class who had come to attend the class usually in these graduate level classes you will get 20 25 people who come to the class 
But here I saw more than twice. There are people sitting on the carpet, there are people sitting on the windowsills, the people sitting, all the chairs were taken, there are people sitting on the desks. And the professor was a wonderful professor, um, Stephanie Paulsell, Professor Stephanie Paulsell. And one um, sign of how wonderful she uh, was, was that when she saw so many people way beyond the limit of the class, she immediately agreed to have the class twice. So every time she would come for the class, she would teach us two hours and then teach the next group two hours, the same thing again, four hours at a stretch, just so that everybody could get the benefit, nobody would be left out. Now in this course, what she did was, she selected some gems of uh, devotional lit uh, literature from the Christian tradition across 2,000 years. Six books, and we were supposed to carefully study those six books. And after we finished studying those six books, there's an interestingly designed course. You study those six books, and there are like any other course, assignments, discussions, classes on each of these books. And then when you finish studying those six books, you study it all over again. Those six books again, a second time each of them. Now you're studying it, uh, it's like a double lesson, lesson in what, what she called slow reading, clear, careful reading. And that's important in this day and age when we are expected to absorb huge amounts of information and process it and fast. Especially in universities, at Harvard I saw one big feature was uh, the amount of reading people were expected to do. Um, handouts and case studies and, uh, you know, papers and books, uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages every week. So people were studying 12 hours, 16 hours and reading enormous amounts of material and very fast. I understand why that is necessary and it works for, say, in the Harvard Law School or in the Harvard Business School. But when you come to the Divinity School and you're reading something profound, not just spiritual literature, even philosophical literature when you read it, you really cannot and should not maybe read so fast. And people, one cannot process it, one cannot understand, one cannot absorb it. So what this professor did, Stephanie Paulsell, what did she did was just the opposite. She said, read it slowly and read it again so that you can absorb it and be inspired by it. So that was a very interesting experience. So there were these books where the first book was um, Evagrius, um, the what is called the Practicals and Chapters on Prayer, is this book. And, and then the next book we studied was um, The Cloud of Unknowing, which is a very famous Christian mystical text. And then the third book was The Interior Castle of St. Teresa of Avila, the medieval, again a, a medieval Christian contemplative text. And then three modern texts. Uh, there was... Uh, Simon Bales, The Waiting for God, and uh, Howard Thurman, who was uh, a very well-known African-American pastor and theologian here, was like Martin Luther King's guru, something like that. Uh, his book, one book by him, and Thomas Merton, whom some of our Swamis knew. I never met him, unfortunately, uh, but Thomas Merton's book also, one of his books. So these were six books. But the earliest and the oldest and the one which I will talk about today is this book written by a Christian monk who lived 1600 years ago, 1600 years ago, 
in the uh, in Constantinople, which was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, and uh, Evagrius. So he was. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about his life, and then we'll go into the book itself. We'll get some gems from the book. This young man, from his very early age in Constantinople, he was, um, you know, intellectual, brilliant, good speaker, very academic, and um, very devoted to the church. So he became very popular and he rose very high and very young, at a very young age, to a high position in the church. Now, after some time, after a few years, he felt he had become so worldly. <coughs> because of all the fame and the power and the attention he was getting from people around. Remember, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire at that time. So he decided, one night he had this dream and when he, he um, sort of vowed that I shall dedicate my life to spiritual practices and only to spiritual practices. And then next morning he woke up and he thought, I have taken the vow in my dream, but still I'll be serious. I will stick to it. So he left everything and he went off to Jerusalem. So this, you must remember, was Christianity was still new at that time, uh, relatively. It was just about 300 years old, 400 years old. He went off to Jerusalem, um, and there, uh, this lady was there, Melania, not Melania Trump, <laughs> Melania, who was a very uh, devout Roman um, lady who had renounced everything in the world and started she was very rich also, so she had started a convent for women. So there were about 50 other women who were staying with her, and they spent that time in study and prayer. And she knew all the, um, the religious groups in that area. And she received Evagrius with uh, honor and uh, asked him to stay there. And very soon, again, there itself he became popular and uh, you know famous, and he realized that no, this is not what I want. So Melania told him that uh, there are groups of monks who stay in the desert. I think what you need is you should go and stay like that. And so that's what he did for the rest of his life. He went off into the desert in Egypt. And they were these early Christian fathers. We read many things about them. One reason we read a lot about them is because of Evagrius. He's the one who popularized, who wrote about these um, great spiritual seekers who spent years and years in austerity, in tapasya, in the desert. So he went and he lived among them. Very austere life. Um, later on, there also he became famous, but uh, he, uh, disciples gathered around him and they wrote about his life. Um, very austere life. Only a few hours in the night he would sleep. From that time onwards till the end of his life, he just subsisted on a little bit of bread, a little oil, and boiled vegetables. And then at the end of his life, one of his disciples uh, writes that his digestion is ruined and he cannot eat that kind of raw food anymore, so we have to cook the vegetables a little more. So that means that kind of life he led. There's a description of how to overcome the uh, passions of the flesh. He stands in the, in the cold of the desert night. All night long, he stands in a well, praying. In this way. Um, he spent years there in great austerity, and but he did not neglect his intellectual work. He wrote books, but these books were different from what he had been doing earlier. In this, it says that it shows, it comes more from his uh, austerity, from his 
contemplation, prayer, and simplicity of life rather than from the intellect. So those books, I'm among them, these actually these are two books. One is called Practicos and the other one is called Chapters on Prayer. They are just in the form of instructions, short instructions. Uh, chapters on Prayer are 153, like each one is one sentence or two sentences, uh, like paragraphs. Um, there are many interesting events in his life. One or two I can mention before we go on to the actual text. Uh, for example, so he was already known as a great teacher. In fact, he went and joined a group of monks who would stay in these huts and they would beg for their food and they had nothing, they had no, no possessions. In fact, one of the leaders of that group before Evagrius went there, this old monk called Pambo, <laughs> he, he had no possessions in the world. And the only thing he had was a basket which he had weaved on that very day and he gave that away to Melania also. And uh, so this, this is the kind of life these monks live, lived, um, very, very much in poverty and dedicated only to prayer. There also, among them, uh, Evagrius became quite popular and very soon the, that group of, particular group of monks was known as Evagrius's group. So he became like the leader. But he also learned, he learned humility there. For example, he notes that one day he went to meet um, another monk who was well known, a very old monk who lived there. And Evagrius went and they would ask each other in this way, tell me one thing by which I can save myself. Some one instruction, give me one instruction. And this old monk said to Evagrius, see very how relevant it is. The old monk said to Evagrius, do not speak unless you are asked a question. Evagrius was known for giving speeches and talks and <laughs> writing books and all. And Evagrius said he felt furious, very annoyed when he heard this. And, and he realized why this monk had told him. It's because of that uh, ego which was there in him that he said immediately when the monk said this, uh, he, Evagrius said the thought came to my mind, I don't need to hear this, I have read so many books, what has he read? <laughs> and then he realized why this monk had told him. So this, this, like, so this is how, these are blessings. You meet these uh, great spiritual seekers who are unknown to the world. In fact, some of them became known to the world. One reason was Evagrius wrote about them. Uh, now, why is he not more well known? One reason was that he was banned by the church, Evagrius. And the reason he was banned by the church is because he was a follower of Another great spiritual teacher, master, theologian, Origen. Origen, who lived um, in Alexandria about 200 years after Christ. And so the very early years of Christianity. He is probably one of the most central figures in the whole history of Christianity. Origen. And he wrote prolifically about Christianity. And what he wrote has become the basis for all of Christianity now. Not just the Catholic Church. So it is upon his writing that others have developed Christianity over the last 2,000 years, origin. But origin is not well known also. Why? Because he was banned by the church. Why was he banned by the church? The answer is very interesting for us as followers of Vedanta. Because of a couple of reasons. First, origin believed that the souls are not just created now. We have existed earlier also. So before the creation of the universe, 
the souls were there. We as um, souls were there. And presumably we have had other lives earlier also. So this is something that was not acceptable to the church. The second reason was, Origen believed that at the end, at the end, at the end of everything, at the end of time, all would attain to unity with God. Not just those who became Christians or followers of the Christian church, but everybody, all beings would attain to oneness with God, attain to God. This was not acceptable to the church, so they banned him. But um, now, of course, it has changed. So now he's uh, acceptable now. And that's why Evagrius, who became a follower of Origen's teachings, because those monks with whom he lived, many of them were followers of Origen's teachings. Origen had already passed away 200 years before Evagrius. Um, so because of his following Origen, or Evagrius also was neglected or banned. And when many theologians criticized Evagrius, later on in the, in the church, they did not know that what, they criticized Evagrius, but they were teaching Evagrius' teachings. They did not know that what they were teaching was, had come from Evagrius. As we shall see, very beautiful uh, teachings are there. He passed away early, um, at the age of 55, 399 AD, just at the turn of the century. Um, the last things recorded about him was he talks about what we might, we might call attaining Jivan Mukti, enlightenment. He says, now uh, I have risen above the ups and downs of you know troubling thoughts. Thoughts do not trouble me anymore. What happens in life does not. I have attained that peace, that joy. And it was noted. He had become very quiet and inward and full of joy and peace and love. So this was the life of Evagrius. Um, so I will read a few points from his chapters on prayer. And you will note how, how beautiful and how inspiring and how useful they are for us as spiritual seekers. So at the very beginning he tells us, the question which he's going to answer in this whole little book. He says, What state of our mind is required that the spirit might strain after it, its master without wavering, living constantly with God without any intermediary? Basically what he means is, how can we think of God? How can we keep our mind on God continuously? Um, I'm reminded of the beginning of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. M asks two questions, I think on his second visit to Sri Ramakrishna. The two fundamental questions of spiritual life. Number one, how can we fix our mind on God? Number one. And number two is, how, how should we live in the world? The first question is this, what Evagrius is asking, 1600 years ago. How can we keep our minds on God? How can we pray without ceasing? How can we continuously contemplate God, not think about the world? So this is the question. And uh, then he answers. So the first thing he says is, if Moses, when he attempted to draw near the burning bush, this we know from the Old Testament, was prohibited until he should remove the shoes from his feet, how should you not free yourself of every thought that is colored by passion? Because what the one you wish to see it's interesting that here he's talking about seeing God. The one you wish to see is beyond every thought and perception. For a beautiful point. He says, 
we all know the story of moses god appeared to him as a burning bushes every child um, who learns the bible is taught that but not notice one interesting fact that he cannot approach the burning bush until he takes off his shoes which we know in every place of worship especially in the east you have to take off your shoes before you enter what does this mean of course it means that you approach god with awe with this suitable reverence that is there that is what what is meant by taking up the shoes um but really here he says what it means is that the one which we want to see which we want to approach god is beyond thought especially beyond our lower thoughts our passions desires angers jealousy that one is beyond it if we stay in the middle of that we cannot see god we cannot approach god we cannot think about god you're asking why how to think about god continuously you cannot think about god if you have put on your shoes shoes means that that mindset which we have got one of the most beautiful instructions about prayer about a uh, devotion to god is that when we go to god you just as you take off your shoes outside the temple in the same way keep outside when you enter uh, enter the inner sanctum enter the temple keep outside your identity as father or i'm a mother i'm um, you know i i am um, i'm a son or daughter i am um, Uh, I have a, I'm an executive in a company. I am, a, you know, maybe a student or a scholar, or I am uh, sick. Uh, all the sources of our worldliness and our problems, our worldly identity, that those are the shoes. Keep it outside. Normally, when people go in churches and temples and mosques, you go with a cloud of worldliness. It's very natural. that's our identity how can we not go there and it is also not wrong in itself see this is what distinguishes at the very beginning when you read this with a discerning eye this is what distinguishes evagrius from uh, mass religion from sp- the spirituality the higher spirituality from uh, mass religion from mass religion common religion is we are in suffering we have problems we go to god and pray so that our problems will be solved we are not praying for god we are praying for the solution of our problems and nothing wrong with that god whom whom will you ask if you will not ask god ultimately it is god alone who can solve our problems but those problems as we know have no final solution the world will remain the world you solve, solve one set of problems by your efforts by god's grace another set will come the reason is god has planned it that way god does not want us to stay here this world is a bridge so on a bridge you don't build a house do not settle down there you have to cross over there in our our trebico monastery it's it's written in the monastery if you enter on the brick walls above there's an arch it's written that this world is a bridge pass over it do not stay here yes. so something in that that uh, it's written there on the brickwork it's meant to be passed over not to build upon build a house upon it so we should have to go through this and it has been designed in such a way that you it will not be comfortable for you to stay here it, it god will make you un- make it uncomfortable till you learn your lesson and you move on um we can go to god with of course with our sorrow with our grief with our unhappiness 
and there gets you get some consolation definitely but but a deeper a purer a higher experience of god you will get immediately if you follow this this advice this is go there without any passions without any desires is very difficult if if i can consciously drop all my passions and desires i would become enlightened very soon but what one can do is go there in a very simple and pure way without thinking of my identity as father mother executive um, or uh, in trouble you know maybe health problem or monetary problem whatever those identities like my shoe if i keep it outside my shoes i keep it outside and i uh, go in there to to the presence of the mighty then you will uh, to the presence of the almighty then the effect you will see immediately you feel purer you feel lighter and your prayer is that much more powerful i come to thee because i love thee not because i have got this list of complaints this list of desires so this is what is meant by taking off the shoes he says when you if you really want to keep your mind on god when you approach god take off your shoes that's how you approach approach god and i also note here that the one who is beyond every thought and perception then the second thing he says is very touching first he says pray first for the gift of tears so that by means of sorrow you may soften your native rudeness that means the hardness of heart then having confessed your sins to the lord you will obtain pardon for them pray with tears and your request will find a hearing now this is an important thing one thing we note about sri ramakrishna in his life the first the, the direct way by which he attained god realization was by tears what was his sadhana quite apart from all the great teachers who came to him even before that he had directly obtained a vision of the divine mother directly obtained a vision of god simply by tears simply by crying for god and it should be possible if god is real god is ever present and god is loving apart from all the philosophies and meditation and uh, techniques of devotion and ritualistic worship and theologies i should be able to access god directly just by my desire for god just by weeping for god just by crying for god and sri ramakrishna demonstrated that that is this just an image others have seen you mother ram prasad you showed yourself to ram prasad will you not show yourself to me is it because that i am an unlearned person unlettered person you will not show yourself to me and he cries day and night he weeps for god to such an extent the on the bank of the river ganga and at sunset you know he is crying and um, one more day has gone and i have not seen god yet one more day has gone from my life and he falls on the bank on the sand there and rubs his face in agony and people would gather around sri ramakrishna and think that oh this young man who is a priest who has come from a village he misses his mother who is in the village and is crying for his mother he was crying for his mother but he was crying for the mother of the universe so 
He's actually, if you think about it, we read so much about the spiritual practices of Sri Ramakrishna because it's all detailed descriptions are there. But before all of that, preceding all of that, is weeping for God, is crying for God. And that is the essential, essential um, requirement for God-realization. Sri Ramakrishna was asked, what is the one thing necessary? And he said, Vyakulata, in, in, intense restlessness for God. In Vedantic terms, in more philosophical terms, it is called Mumukshutvam, intense desire for release, for freedom, for enlightenment, for freedom from samsara. But this is expressed in tears. In our personal life also, and I have heard from many spiritual seekers, just like all of us, in many cases they have reported, um, significantly spiritual life began from them um, with crying, privately, in their heart of hearts. Nobody knew maybe. Tears came to them for some reason. Sometimes the reason was known, sometimes no reason is known. Suddenly, you feel like weeping for God. And then here Evagrius says that this is very crucial. Pray with tears and your request will find a hearing. God listens to everything, everything that's going on, everything that's being said. But with tears if you pray, God listens with extra care. And uh, in number of cases I found who are serious spiritual seekers, I don't know if they're enlightened or not, in many, many cases, they attribute it that at one time, in my childhood, in my youth, one day, for this reason or that reason, I wept for God. And my life changed over the years. and It's just like then, then God takes over responsibility. After that you may not again. But um, God does not forget. If innocently... Um, helplessly or wept for God even once you may forget you may even become immersed in worldliness again God will not forget you God take res takes responsibility for you and God will guide you so it may take time depending on our past karma depending on our own efforts more we are sincere the faster it is we are not sincere not, not so intense It'll take time but in one sense it is done because now it is in the hands of God and God will not fail. I think it is Sri Ramakrishna who said that if you weep sincerely for God for three days then you will surely see God. Um, so I still remember this humorous incident. Swami Chetanandaji, I remember many years ago, about 20 years ago, he had come to Belurmat. I was a young brahmachari at that time and he would go to Swami Bhuteshanandaji to ask all the whatever questions he had accumulated here and uh, which he wanted some advice on, he would go to Swami Bhuteshananda and ask those questions. And we as youngsters would gather around to listen. Um, and Bhuteshananda also would make a little, pull his leg and make you know, like fun. He loved Swami Chesanananda very much. Um, so the question he asked was that, um, um, Maharaj, this is Swami Chetananji asking Bhuteshananji, and I was listening there. Maharaj, in Hollywood, there was this actress who came to me and she said, Swami, you said that uh, Sri Ramakrishna, I said, three days, if you weep for God, then you will realize uh, God. Is that true? And uh, Chetananji said, I said, yes, I guess it must be true. And then uh, she said, oh, well, I can weep whenever I want to. And so I'm going to try it. 
And three days later, she came and said that I tried weeping. I wept more or less continuously for three days, but I did not realize God. Now, what is the meaning of this? And Chesanandji said, I had no answer for that, so now I'm asking you. <laughs> I don't know what Bhutteshanji said. I don't remember clearly. But it was something like, remember, he said, weep for God sincerely means it should come from within. It should not be a deliberate thing. Now from um, 8 o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock, I shall weep for God. <laughs> we can't normally do it, but an actress in Hollywood might be able to do it. <laughs> so, uh, it. Even that, I think, I mean, that's not what Bhutteshanji said, but I think even that is good if one simulates it. Um, but that's not what was meant by Sri Ramakrishna. But yes, if one weeps for God intensely, God responds. I have seen in Belurmat, those people who come with problems, um, so old swamis, they ask the swamis for help, and the swamis give some spiritual advice. If they pester too much, I'm, I'm so much suffering, you must do something. Then they will say, get Thakur ke bola, go and tell Sri Ramakrishna. But if they're even more serious, even more urgent, even more unhappy, then in a few cases I have seen, the senior swamis will whisper this final solution. Not even to Sri Ramakrishna in that big grand temple. Go to the bank of the Ganga, there's a little temple there of, of Mashar, the Holy Mother. Go and weep before her. Uh, that is a guaranteed solution. You will get answer to that. There is, there is no, uh, there is not once it will fail. Whatever. I have seen it succeed. I mean, I have myself known of cases where it should not work. But this person actually asked for um, enlightenment, for Brahma Jnana to the Holy Mother and got it. Amazing. I mean, it is. And uh, that person said, in no way do I deserve this. So at least a spiritual breakthrough. that uh, The realization that there is Brahman and I am that reality. This became absolutely clear. Within, within um, one, two months of asking for that. One, two months of asking for that. So anyway, if you ask with tears, it will be. Uh, answered. Even if uh, that answer is, is a secondary thing, that's a great thing, but the first effect is it softens our heart. Our hearts are hard. They are hardened by worldliness. Like a, like a layer of plaque or cholesterol develops over the heart. Similarly, our, what this worldliness, dealing too much with the world, has hardened our hearts. That purity, that softness, that that sweetness is is there, but it's hidden over. So that is revealed. That the dross is washed away by tears, and it it can be. The best is it should it should be private. It, others need not and should not see. It should be only between you and God. And the effect of that is immediate. It's spiritual benefit of those crying for God is it's it's immediate. It's an immediate benefit. Sri Ramakrishna says, the mother keeps the child busy with toys. As long as the baby is playing with toys, and the mother is busy with her household work. She has lots of things to do. But if the baby stops playing with the toys, and he, dem he would demonstrate, Sri Ramakrishna, he would demonstrate like a baby throwing its hands out and crying, Mother, Ma. Then the mother drops everything and comes running and takes the baby and uh, puts it on her lap. So similarly, God comes running 
if you if you can cry for God. Pray with tears and your request will find a hearing. Then the next thing he says is, how do you keep your mind on God? Why is it that we are not able to keep our mind on God, even if we want to keep our mind on God? So here, strive to render your mind deaf and dumb at the time of prayer, and then you will be able to pray. Strive to render your mind deaf and dumb. What does it mean? You have to, somebody said, a great scholar, he said that these little statements, they are like mystical icebergs. In an iceberg, you see only one-tenth on the surface and nine-tenths are below the water. So you have to stay with this and see what it means. It's a very deep meaning. Deaf and dumb. How do you make the mind deaf and dumb? What the mind does is, it, it acts as the central you know, the receptacle for all information from the world. The eyes see the forms and dumps it all in the mind. Ears hear sounds, speech, music, and dumps it in the mind. Nose, the smell, tongue, the taste, hands, touch, cold, hot, pressure, soft, all of that. Um, pain, all of that is dumped in the mind. And so this is the mind hearing, hearing not just uh, with the ears, all the five senses continuously pouring, the, the world is entering the mind through these five doors. And we are engaged in this. We react, we react through the motor organs, talking, we, we say things. And we grasp and walk and go to places, do things. Now, when Evagrius says, render the mind deaf and dumb, he means shut down the activity of the sense organs and the motor organs. The five sense organs and the five motor organs. Long ago in the Upanishad, he said, why is it that we do not realize our real nature? Paran chikhani vyatrinatsvayam bhu tasmat parang pasyati nantaratman. The Lord has so made, in fact, the original Sanskrit means has so damaged us, manufacturing defect, <laughs> that all our senses flow outwards. It's a poetical way of saying it. Of course, senses are meant to flow outwards. And therefore, we see the world outside. We see, hear, smell, we are engaged in the world outside. That's how our senses are flowing. All our knowledge is objective knowledge out there. Tasmat parang pashyati. You see all objective things. See, hear, smell. And therefore, what you see, hear, smell, taste, you think about that also. You remember that also. You concern yourself with that. What's wrong with that? Nantaratman, so the inner self is not seen because we are turned outwards all the time. Then what is to be done? The same Upanishad, the next line is Kaschidhira avritta chakshur pratyagatmana maikshat amritatva michan. Kaschidhira avritta chakshur amritatva michan pratyagatmana maikshat. Some great Spiritual seeker. Dhira literally means a person who is heroic and patient. It, it takes patience to carefully withdraw 
turn inwards. Avrikta chakshu. Here it is said, making the mind deaf. He said, there it is said, uh, covering the eyes. Covering the eyes. Avrikta chakshu. And realizes the inner self. Why would a person do that? Amritatva michan. In order to attain immortality. To go beyond death. To go beyond death, one does that. One looks inwards to see the reality within. The same thing which uh, Evagrius puts it so simply. They try to make the mind uh, deaf. Deaf to what? Deaf to the world. Deaf to what the eyes are showing you. The movie that the eyes are showing you. Deaf to the music track, the, uh, the audio track being played. The audio of the world being played by the ears. Deaf to that. No, I will not react. I will not listen. I will not see. I will not react. And there is a limit to what you cannot see and what you cannot hear. There, because the ears are there and eyes are there. You will see some things and you will hear some things. But at the time of prayer especially, withdraw. And dumb. Do not react to what people are saying, what is happening out there. If you want to turn inwards and focus in prayer, you must cut off the world to some extent. And this is especially at the time of prayer. I remember instructions for meditation. A monk shouting out the instructions. He was more like a drill instructor in a parade ground than uh, a spiritual instruction in Hindi. I mean, what he said was, don't move, don't speak, don't think. Three levels. Hilomat, bolomat, sochomat. Hilomat means don't move. Don't move means that you can break it down into a lot of instructions of how to sit for a long time without moving, um, straight yet not rigid, relaxed. You can give a lot of instructions. But all of that he said, don't move. Hilomat. Then what else? Our minds are continuously chattering. Bolomat. Don't speak with your mouth. Don't speak with your mind. The mind is chattering. This is what Evagrius says, make it dumb, make the mind dumb, quieten the mind, stop, don't talk. And then he says, sochomat, don't think. So physically the, the tongue don't talk, mentally don't think, think about the world that is. Then the stage is set, it's free for the delicate task, task of turning inwards in contemplative prayer. And then next... He says something which he has said many times actually. Um, I'll read it out first. Whatever you may try to do by way of avenging yourself on a brother. Remember, it's a group of monks. Avenging yourself on a brother who has done you some injustice will turn into a stumbling block for you at the time of prayer. I'm angry with somebody. And I do actually, not only I'm holding on to that anger and resentment, but I actually do something. Say a harsh word, insult that person. You, it might be justified. Maybe that person has really behaved badly with you. But one thing he wants is, one thing you will not be able to do, the price you will pay is, you will not be able to keep your mind on God if you do that. And he goes on to say, if you wish to pray worthily, um, no, wait. Uh, if you desire to pray as you ought to, do not sadden anyone. Otherwise, you run in vain. 
that practice which you are doing, it will be in vain. It will not work. It will become mechanical and dry. If you have hurt somebody else, you might say, but they deserve to be hurt. They're nasty people. They have behaved badly with me. Even then, don't do it. Even then. Put up with it. He will talk about that later. But if you bear with it, even the injustice of the world, even the injustice of people around you, with that forbearance and holding yourself back, that day and the days later when you pray, when you meditate, you will find much more power, much more depth and peace. So these are... See, these people... 1600 years ago in the desert of Egypt um, they knew more psychology than the best counselors in New York here today no. they understood this about the human psychology see we are, all in, we are all connected if there is ultimately one reality underlying all bodies and minds if you hurt somebody else you are hurting yourself if you hurt somebody else you are hurting God in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna says Kshetragyam chapi maam vidhi sarvakshetreshu bharata. Know me alone to be the one consciousness in all living beings. When you're dealing with other living beings, you're dealing with me alone, with the Lord alone. And if you insult, lash out, whom are you insulting? Whom are you hitting out? You're hitting at yourself, you're hitting at God. Therefore, you cannot pray anymore. Then he quotes from, from the Bible, Leave your gift before the altar and go be reconciled with your brother, our Lord said. This is from Jesus Christ. And then you shall pray undisturbed. For resentment blinds the reason of the man who prays and casts a cloud over his prayer. The man who stores up injuries and resentments and yet fancies that he prays might as well draw water from a well and pour it into a cask that is full of holes. Draw water, put it into a pot which is full of holes. It will run out all the time. I am praying to God morning, afternoon, evening. I am sitting for my japa meditation. But I have a set of grudges which I hold against people. And it might, we're not seeing that it might not be justified. Many people behave badly to many people in this world. Might be justified. But this is a fact. Whatever it is justified or not, the fact is this much. That if I hold on to that, if I store up, then uh, prayer will not work. You will not feel the peace, you will not feel the joy, you will not feel the presence of God. There will be a gap, always. And that gap is our doing, not God's doing. Let go. When Sadhu put it very beautifully, the one who is angry with somebody else, yeah, who seeks to burn another with the fire of his hang anger. The, it's foolishness because when you light a fire to burn others, the first place which you burn is your own heart. That fire will burn you first before burning anybody else. The anger and resentment which is burning here, it is expressed by my uh, harsh words, by my nasty behavior to others. So it hurts others. But before already before that it has hurt me. Swami Vivekananda says, it is a fool who cannot get angry, but it is the wise man who will not get angry. Anger is there. It's, it's, uh, it's a power within us. Uh, but one must not get angry. And then he says, <coughs> if you wish to pray worthily, deny yourself every hour. Playing the part of a wise man, study and work very hard, 
and learn to endure much for the sake of prayer. Whatever difficulty you patiently endure through love of wisdom or love of God will reap ripe fruits at the time of prayer. This is something that Sri Ramakrishna Holy Mother specially again and again emphasized. The power of forbearance. In Vedanta it is called titiksha. The ability, the practice. It's not even ability if you say, one might say, I don't have the ability, I react immediately, I, I cannot bear it. But it's a practice. Practice everybody can do. Start wherever you are, put up with troubles. Troubles caused by other people, by the behavior of other people. Troubles caused by one's own body, health. Troubles caused by the environment, too hot, too cold. Ups and downs of the mind. Forbear with it. Forbear with it means, whatever happens, I shall pursue my spiritual practices. Whatever happens, I shall not lose my calm. I shall not react hastily. This practice of forbearance, Sri Ramakrishna used to play with the words in Bengali, he said, Sha, Sha, Sha. This is only, it works only in Bengali. The letter Sha in Sanskrit or other, uh, Hindi, for example, there are three Shas. Uh, there is a Sha, Sa, Sha. In Bengali, all of them sound the same. And they all mean the, also, if, the, if you want to take a word meaning, it means forbear. Bear with trouble. And Sri Ramakrishna says, forbear, forbear, forbear. And then he again plays with words. Je shoy se roy. Je na shoy tar na shoy. So he says, the one who forbears, that one stays. That one will win life. The one who does not forbear, that one will be destroyed. It's a, in English it doesn't work too well, but the message is that. In Bengali he plays puns with the words. And the Holy Mother says, there is no quality, no virtue, as great as patience, as forbearance. It's a powerful spiritual practice. If we are patient and forbearing in times of trouble, it could be sickness, it could be the behavior of others, it could be anxiety, patient, then you'll see the mind becomes very strong. Mind becomes very deep. And that mind can pray, meditate, do japa much more effectively than before. So it's a very wise thing for a spiritual seeker to patiently bear with trouble. All great saints in every tradition, every religion have this one, one uh, quality. They have deep powers of forbearance. They don't react, they don't lash out. I remember this story. Uh, it's not so, it's a real thing. It's from the Russian Orthodox Church. So one man was taught in the church that... Uh, you should thank God for whatever good comes and whatever evil comes in your life. That man thought about it seriously and went back and he asked the priest, the pastor, Father, you said whatever good comes and bad comes, you should thank God. When good comes in my life, it's very easy for me to thank God. When something evil happens to me, and sorrow strikes me, I find it difficult to thank God for that sorrow. It is not. It does not come. How can I do that? Then that pastor, that, that, that father, he said, look, I cannot answer your question because I also have the same trouble. But go to the forest. So this uh, Russian Orthodox Church has a tradition of hermits, just like the desert fathers who went to the desert in Egypt and lived there. The Russian Orthodox Church also, even now also I think they have, and they are called starets, uh, who are hermits, 
who live in the forest, in cells, in huts, and who meditate and pray. So there is such a hermit who lives in the forest there. Go to the cell of that hermit and ask him. He will answer your question. So this man goes and he finds that, that cell and he finds that monk who was a young monk but he seemed aged by a lot of hardship. And there were marks of disease on his body um, and he seemed haggard but his eyes were luminous. There was a joy on his face. So this man put his problem. And that how can I thank God when bad things happen, when suffering happens? When God gives me suffering, how can I thank God? And this uh, monk said, I also can't tell you because God has never given me suffering. <laughs> he found the uh, answer, you see. This person is leading such a hard life and clearly has suffered poverty and this disease and everything. And he says, God has never given me suffering. How can I? He doesn't even see it as suffering. He has re reached at such excellence in forbearance. So that makes prayer deeper. Now on a lighter tone, he says, Evagrius, prayer is the fruit of joy and of thanksgiving. Prayer is the exclusion of sadness and despondency. If you are a spiritual person, you cannot be a sad person. You lose your right to be miserable and grumble. Swami Ranganathan used to tell us, don't grumble. You are monks. So whatever happens in your life, don't grumble. That's so small and so petty. Spirituality, prayer is the exclusion of sadness and despondency. St. Teresa of Avila used to say, a sad nun is a bad nun. Swami Vivekananda used to say is that, uh, don't, a miserable face, it's like a disease, don't, you have no right to take it out into the world. If you have a miserable face, you shut yourself up in the room and stay until you feel better. So you, you should not spread misery. That means don't nurture um, depression in your heart. This is also very deep psychology. Grief, sadness, unhappiness is natural in life. But what is not natural is holding on to it. That's a trick of the mind. And that comes from the tamas, the quality of tamas. Tamas holds on. Bhagavad Gita says one of the characteristics of tamas is uh, shoka. That is, it holds on to uh, sadness and makes it a lasting grief. It should not hold on to it. So, exclusion of sadness and despondency. Swami Vivekananda was asked that, uh, are you never serious? And he says, yes, I am serious, madam. When I have a tummy ache, then I am serious. In uh, the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, when you read, you find people are laughing all the time. Sri Ramakrishna is laughing, with, and especially the children, uh, the young boys around him, they, sometimes they are rolling on the floor with laughter. This does not mean hilarity or lightness. I remember, we had lots of fun as young novices and brahmacharis, but we are cautioned by a senior monk. A very senior monk told us once um, that enough of this, he put it in the, <laughs> the crude language, he said enough of this ha-ha-he-he. <laughs> 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 yeah. Because we, used, uh, we often we used to behave like little children. Um, so ha-ha-he, he said that enough of this. The more you spend your time like this, the less capable the mind will be of holding on to deep subject. Of less capable the mind will be become of serious thinking. So it's not hilarity that way. What is meant here is the joy of simplicity. Swami Vivekananda puts it very well. It's actually seriousness. He says, combine the utmost seriousness 
combine great seriousness with utmost simplicity. Combine great seriousness with utmost simplicity. That's the ideal. What kind of a character and mind should we cultivate? We cultivate great um, seriousness and the utmost simplicity of a child. And the best demonstration is Swami Vivekananda himself. One American lady here, she says that he would often remind us of this great big boy. <laughs> and I said, I would fear from him, fear for him. That is the going out into the world like a child, like a dear child who is very simple going out into the world. But great, uh, this is utmost simplicity, which combined with great seriousness. Our problem is usually the opposite. We combine this um, uh, total lack of seriousness. We, we're always concerned with superficialities. And we combine it with great complexity. Complicated people. And ever all the time concerned with superficial things in life. Just the opposite of what he says. Uh, great seriousness and utmost simplicity. Most great people in life, if you see, they're pretty simple actually. People think that if I'm simple, people will take advantage of me. No, there's a saying which I like. That nothing confounds the clever so much as simplicity. <laughs> Those are very clever and worldly. One thing they cannot understand and comprehend is simplicity. I've seen the great swamis, the senior most swamis. And they were very simple. But they were not foolish. They understood everything about us. Every little thing. And sometimes even supernaturally so. I the way I understood it was like this. That uh, I was teaching in one of our Ramakrishna mission schools as a novice. And if you teach school children for some time, especially if you're good at it, if you're a good teacher, uh, you begin to understand the mentality of the children after all. So even when they pretend to do something and they are naughty or whatever, you understand. As a parent, as a teacher, uh, one can easily see through, because they're children, they're simple. Um, now, the same thing is probably true of saints and us. We are like children to them. We may pretend to be clever, we may pretend to put up a front, they see through it immediately. But they don't, um, uh, they don't take advantage of that, they don't, uh, they don't think less of us for that, because they love us, just as you love the children, even if a children is pretending to be, you know, like trying to be, uh, to hide his or uh, his naughtiness or something. <laughs> you love the child, so you see through it, but it's alright. It's a child. Similarly, these saints, they look at us that way. And I have no doubt, at least a few I've met, who clearly would see everything in our minds. It can be scary to go and go in front of such a person. One, one who can see through. I remember the story of uh, an old man who came to see Swami Brahmananda and he wept. Um, why? He said, you know, in my youth I had heard about Sri Ramakrishna. Um, and I went to see him. I knew he was in Dakshineshwar. So I walked towards Dakshineshwar to see him. I was in Calcutta, nearby. On the way, I thought, this man has a reputation of being able to see into your heart, into your mind. And a great terror seized me. What if he knows what is in my mind? And then he, he didn't have the courage to go and go in front of Sri Ramakrishna. 
and he this and his old age he met swami brahmananda he was weeping i missed the chance to seeing sri ramakrishna he was weeping bitterly and swami brahmananda consoled him that he said if you have seen the son you have seen the father if, that means if you have seen me you have seen it's as good as seeing sri ramakrishna he consoled him but one one it can be very scary to think of a person who understands whatever is deep in our hearts in our minds but they are they are like parents they are more like grandparents these <laughs> senior swamis and so uh, they can see through to us then he says armed as you are against anger do not submit to any powerful desire for it is these which f- provide fuel for anger and anger is in turn calculated to cloud the eye of your spirit and destroy your state of prayer central teaching second chapter bhagavad gita kamat krodho vijayate krodhat bhavati sammoha krishna warns arjuna the spiritual seeker this is the crucial uh, psychology insight why all spiritual teachers in every religion why do they advise us against worldly desires because worldly desires when they are powerful and they are obstructed and they are bound to be obstructed none of them will be ever fulfilled if you are fulfilled you will not be uh, if the desires what you want they are fulfilled you will not be satisfied if they are not fulfilled you will be annoyed anger is the result anything or anybody that obstructs what we want immediately the reaction is a flash of anger within us and he says desire and anger will cloud your mind and completely destroy any chance of prayer and japa and meditation you can still go on but it will become mechanical it that that presence of god will be lost immediately so he says never cultivate anger never ever give way to anger but behind anger is desire so never cultivate deep desires worldly desires do not submit to powerful desires these desires will come because already our mind is conditioned so desires will come it's impractical to say that don't have any worldly thoughts worldly thoughts will come don't give in we were reading the gita just the last class in this life itself one who can withstand the waves of um kama krodho udbhavam vegam the waves of anger and desire those waves of anger and desire will come in the mind one who can withstand that is not react not give way in anger uh, or chasing desires which i know is beyond the limits of uh, righteousness beyond the limits of decency beyond the limits of morality why do we do that is because we can't control ourselves that don't give in there even if one fails again try it will succeed bound to succeed there is a testimony of people like evagrius for thousands of years if you put in some effort you will be bound to succeed by the grace of god success will come overcome our desires then the mind will be pure enough undisturbed enough to concentrate in uh, in prayer uh, in uh, feel the presence of god we have gone over time but so many treasures here um, i would so this book is not so well known but you can see is full of beautiful little nuggets of spiritual uh, advice which evagrius himself it's the born of his own spiritual practice and this is these are the things he would give to the other monks around him 
How interesting. He's a Christian monk living in the desert of Egypt. 1,600 years ago. And yet everything he's saying is speaking to us directly. We are practicing Vedanta here in Manhattan in the 21st century. Look at the vast gulf between us. And yet everything that he's saying makes total sense to us. It is an inspiration to us. Let me read a couple more and then I'll stop. I'll just read it out. Again, he says, Do not pray for the fulfillment of your own desires. Whatever is the will of God, let it be. I remember Swami Atmasthanandaji, who was the president of our order. When I took my vows of Brahmacharya, the first vows as a novice, we all went as a group to bow down to the senior monks. He was the vice president at that time. One bit of advice he gave us at that time I still remember. He said, in your monastic life, remember, submit to the will of Thakur, of Sri Ramakrishna. He says, in my long life what I have seen that whenever I tried to do something which I thought was good, against the will of the order, against the will of, uh, it, it turned out to be against the will of Thakur also. And did not turn out well for me. And even if I did not like it, what I was ordered to do by the, by the um, uh, monastic order, uh, and I followed it as the will of God, that ultimately turned out to be good for me. So here he says, Pray not to this end that your own desires will be fulfilled. You can be sure that they, that means your desires, do not fully accord with the will of God. Once you have learned to accept this point, pray instead, thy will be done. As many of Thakur's disciples, Thakur himself would say, Tuhu, Tuhu, thou, thou my Lord, not I. In every matter, ask him in this way, ask God in this way, for what is good and what, what gives profit on your soul, for you yourself do not seek this so completely as he does. You do not seek your... This is what a very beautiful way of putting it. We are like children. We do not know what is good for us. As parents, you know what is good for the child, especially a little child, much more than what the child knows. Similarly, God knows what is ultimately good for us in terms of spirituality. Much more than we know. can be sure about that. So to the best of our ability, let us go forward in spiritual life as taught in the scriptures, as taught by the great spiritual masters. But... Submit to the will of God. Know that actually God is taking us to God, to spiritual life, by the fastest possible route. It may not feel like that, but we don't know. Many times when I was at prayer, I would keep asking for what seemed good to me. I kept insisting on my own request, unreasonably putting pressure on the will of God. I simply would not leave it up to his uh, providence, that is his grace, to arrange for what he knew would, be, would turn out to be for my profit. Finally, when I obtained my request, I became greatly chagrined at having been so stubborn about getting my own way, for in the end, the matter did not turn out to be what I had fancied it would. This is our experience all the time. Whenever specific desire we have got and we ask and we often, I often hear this, that what I want in spiritual life you make a little progress, little japa and dhyana. If you have specific desires, they will quickly be fulfilled. Be careful, don't be happy there. You are getting into trouble. 
It's much better that they are not fulfilled. Much better that leave it to... Sometimes in the world there are things which you, your heart wants so much that you cannot avoid it. In that case, the best thing is you can ask God for it. Specific things. But at the same time, add, let thy will be done. What is good, do that. To ask Thakur, ask Ma, but then what is good, let that be done. What is your will, let that be done. This is my little request, but what is there that is good besides God alone? Very profound. Therefore, let us cast aside all our concerns. Let us cast all our concerns upon Him and it will be well with us. Certainly, he who is wholly good is necessarily the kind of person who will only give good gifts to us. Sri Ramakrishna said, and the Bible also it said, Who among you, if your children ask for food, for bread, will you give them stones? Sri Ramakrishna said that um, to the, the, they pray that God will take care of us. We are the children of God. Of course, we are the children of God. God will take care of us. Why do you have to pray? Who will take care of you? The neighbors will take care of you. It's your own parents. Uh, God will take care of you, definitely. One interesting comment he made which has um, attracted attention by theologians and philosophers. He says, undistracted prayer is the highest act of the intellect. This is all your... Who is saying this? Evagrius. One of the most learned um, um, theologians of his time. And he's saying, after all philosophy, all theology, I have found that this intellect, buddhi, the highest thing it can do is one-pointed, concentrated prayer, thought of God. Everything else, all our philosophy, all our, you know, Drigdrishya Viveka and Panchakosha Viveka and all the cause and effect and everything that we do in the West and the East, he says, ultimately they, it should culminate in one-pointed, undistracted thought of God and God alone. That is the highest act of the intellect. I'll end with an observation which Swami Bhuteshananji used to say. He would, give us, he would say, what we want, in Bengali he would say, Shuddha buddhi chai, shukha buddhi nai. He says, what is wanted is a pure intellect, not a subtle intellect. It's a subtle intellect, keen intellect, very high IQ. Um, that is good, but that's not necessarily spiritual. What is spiritual is a pure intellect. A pure intellect is that which will catch immediately. God exists. Finding God, dwelling in God is the highest, most useful, the best way of becoming happy and fulfilled in life. If somebody has come to that conclusion, that person is truly intelligent. That person is truly wise. Let us pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, Sri Ramakrishna, the Holy Mother and Swami Vivekananda to bless us on this very holy day that may we be filled with the spirit of prayer. May we have that purity of mind, the wisdom, the real wisdom to hold on to God and to dwell on God forever and evermore. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Very good.